The worst week in the history of the University of Notre Dame had led to this moment. It was April 4th, 1931, Holy Saturday, the day before Easter. Newt Rockney, the football coach of the Fighting Irish, the face of the university, the personality that had put this small Catholic institution on the American map, had died four days earlier, perishing in the crash of a TWA flight on a Kansas prairie. And now he was being memorialized in South Bend, Indiana. Reverend Charles O'Donnell, the president of Notre Dame, stood at the altar inside the Church of the Sacred Heart. Black and white streamers cascaded from the vaulted ceiling. Some 1,400 mourners, admitted by invitation only, awaited his eulogy. Another 5,000 or so stood outside on the cold early spring afternoon, listening to the service over loudspeakers. The eulogy given by Father O'Donnell just might be the most famous oration on the campus not given by Rockney himself. Newt Rockney is dead, the priest said. And who was he? Asked the President of the United States, who dispatched a personal message of tribute to his memory and comfort to his bereaved family. Asked the King of Norway, who sends a special delegation as his personal representatives to this solemn service. Ask the several state legislatures, now sitting, that have passed resolutions of sympathy and condolence. Ask the university senates, the civic bodies, and societies without number. Ask the bishops, the clergy, the religious orders that have sent assurances of sympathy and prayers. Ask the thousands of newspaper men whose labor of love and his memory has stirred a reading public of 125 million Americans. Ask men and women from every walk of life. Ask the children, the boys of America. Ask any and all of these. Who was this man whose death has struck the nations with dismay and has everywhere bowed heads in grief? Father O'Donnell said something else worth noting to the mourners assembled before him. He said, We represent millions of men and women like ourselves who are here in spirit, in the very spirit of these solemn services, and listening all over America to these holy rites. Listening all over America. Welcome to Down and Distance, a podcast about the history of college football, part of ESPN's College Football 150, commemorating the 150th anniversary of the sport. I'm your host, Ivan Mazel. In this episode, America Mourns Rockney, we explore how the broadcast of the Rockney service, believed to be the first national broadcast of a funeral, made history. You know who works hard? Rookies. Sure, they make mistakes, but no one's got more to prove, knowing each day is another opportunity to outwork them all and earn the respect they deserve. That's why, after 130 years, Carhartt still approaches each day with the passion and work ethic of a company that's 130 years young. Same hunger, same determination, same giant chip on the shoulder. And in the same way a rookie needs to work hard to earn the respect of their peers, everything Carhartt makes has to keep earning the respect of the hardworking people who wear it. That's why Carhartt still works like a rookie, and why Carhartt will keep outworking them all for the next 130 years, too. 
Visit Carhartt.com forward slash CFB to learn more and shop this season's hardest working gear. Some of us are old enough to tell you where we were when John John Kennedy saluted his father's casket in 1963, or where we were when Princess Diana died in 1997. Even now, when the internet has diverted American viewing habits into many streams, the funerals last year of Senator John McCain and former President George H.W. Bush continued the tradition of national communal mourning. We laugh together, we engage together, and when a prominent person dies, we cry together. That tradition got its legs on April 4, 1931. Rockney had been the American success story in the flesh. A boy who came to America from Norway at age six, a young man who worked his way through Notre Dame, a stellar athlete who became a chemistry professor. Most of all, Rockney was a young coach who revolutionized a young game, not only with his X's and O's, but with his ability to market a team and a university to a mostly Protestant country that didn't roll out the welcome mat for a Catholic university. We're going to get them on the run, we're going to go, 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 and we aren't going to stop until we go to that goal line. Don't forget, men, today is the day we're going to win. They can't lick us. Fight, 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 fight. What do you say, men? Rockney was a walking, talking bolt of electricity, and he was gone, dead at the age of 43. There certainly had been other deaths that Americans mourned as a nation, but Rockney died at the dawn of a communications revolution. The fact that millions of Americans could listen to the funeral simultaneously made the emotional wallop delivered by his death land harder, its force magnified. And listen, they did, from New York to Chicago, from Los Angeles to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where a crowd of 100 men at the Elks Club sat before a radio in communal silence. I should note that if there is a recording of Rockney's funeral, or of any of the radio tributes to Rockney that aired the week of his death, they're well hidden. Much of this story is derived from the written journalism of the day. Radio brought an immediacy, an urgency, that other media of the time could not. If you wanted to see footage of the crash site and the funeral, you had to wait until the newsreels arrived in the theaters the following week. Radio told you the story as it happened. It had begun to insert its presence in a sense of connectedness into everyday life. So had the telephone. And air travel had just begun to bring the country closer together, too. It was an innovative age, in part embodied by the beloved coach himself. The ramifications of all that became clear, the meaning real, in the tragic first week of April, 1931. How good a coach was Newt Rockney in 13 seasons at Notre Dame? Let me give you an easy measure. As luck would have it, the greatest coach of the modern era has been at his job for about the same amount of time. Since Nick Saban took over Alabama in 2007, the Crimson Tide has won five national championships. They have a record of 141 wins and 21 losses. That's a winning percentage of 870. 870. That winning percentage is one of the best in the history of the game. In fact, it's second best to Newt Rockney. In 13 seasons, Rockney won 105 games 
lost 12, and tied 5, a percentage of 881. And don't forget one other point. Saban took over a program with a pedigree, one with a legacy of Hall of Fame coaches, from Wallace Wade during Rockney's time, to Frank Thomas, who played for Rockney, to Bear Bryant and Gene Stallings. Rockney built Notre Dame into a national power brick by brick. He had no blueprint. There were no national powers when Rockney took over as head coach in 1919. College football was a regional sport. You played the teams near you. Rockney changed that, partly out of necessity. Anti-Catholic prejudice was a lot more mainstream in the 1920s. The nearby Midwestern teams that now form a conference we know as the Big Ten didn't want Notre Dame as a colleague. So Rockney turned a minus into a plus. He astutely took the Irish on the road to New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles, big cities full of Catholic immigrants who would be eager to cheer on a Catholic university. It was their entry into a uniquely American ritual. In doing so, Notre Dame became a national team. Rockney found other ways to boost the profile of the Fighting Irish. He cultivated friendships with the legendary sports voices of radio and in the newspapers, tapping into the powerful and emerging media of his day. Men like Grantland Rice, who wrote the famous Four Horsemen story when Notre Dame beat Army in 1924. It's merely one of the most famous leads in American journalism. Outlined against a blue-gray October sky, the Four Horsemen rode again. In dramatic lore, they are known as Famine, Pestilence, destruction, and death. These are only aliases. Their real names are Stooldrer, Miller, Crowley, and Layden, a reference to the four legendary backs on Rockney's team. Rockney believed in airplanes as the future of American travel. His work as both coach and marketer took him all over the country. And with the speed and convenience of the growing airline industry, he could leave the Notre Dame campus and get to Los Angeles within 24 hours. Think of it. A train would take three days. With a good pilot and a good plane, it's as safe as any other method, Rockney said. Consider this anecdote. One of the broadcasters Rockney befriended, Ted Husing of CBS, became the first great play-by-play man in the business. Husing had a sonorous voice and an extensive vocabulary and he loved to use them to deliver a crisp, accurate broadcast. Husing and Rockney became good friends. One biographer of Husing called Rockney the big brother that Husing never had. A few months before Rockney's death, the Fighting Irish concluded their second consecutive undefeated season with a 27-0 victory at USC. Rockney stayed in Los Angeles for a few days to relax and work on a series of instructional films yet another medium Rockney was keen to use to his program's advantage. Husing contacted Rockney and asked him to come to New York to serve as Husing's analyst on the broadcast of the Army-Navy game the following Saturday. Rockney told him, For you, Ted, I'll fly out and back. And so he did, without incident. And so, at the end of March 1931, Rockney left his family vacationing in Florida to return to campus for a day. He took a sleeper train from Chicago to Kansas City, and on the morning of March 31st, boarded a TWA flight to Los Angeles. 
He would stay there for two days, where he planned to sign a $50,000 contract to make a football film in which he would play himself. Rockney's plane left Kansas City at 9.15 in the morning. Within little more than an hour, the Fokker F-10 aircraft hit bad weather, snow, sleet, and fog. Around 1 p.m. Eastern Time, the news came through over the Associated Press wire. The plane, with its two pilots and six passengers, had gone down east of Wichita on a farm near Bazaar, Kansas. A news bulletin on a Chicago radio station informed Rockney's mother and two sisters of the crash. The Chicago Tribune reported that his mother, without identifying herself, called the paper and asked if Rockney had died. And she wasn't the only one. At some point, Tribune operators, overwhelmed by callers, began answering the phone with an upfront statement. Yes, it's true about Rockney. At midnight, 11 hours after AP first sent the story, Newsboys in New York subways were still yelling, Rockney dead! Francis Wallace, a New York newspaper man and a friend of Rockney, was also on vacation in Miami. After Wallace heard the news, he drove to the nearby house where Bonnie Rockney and the couple's two youngest children were staying. Telegrams of condolence already had begun to stack up outside the front door. On the top... Wallace saw one that Rockney had sent from Kansas City. Leaving right now. Stop. We'll be at Biltmore. Stop. Love and kisses. Every college football season, it takes a lot of effort to get each team properly equipped and ready to hit the field as an efficient playing machine. Same for your business. For more than 90 years, Centos has worked to help businesses big and small look more professional and run more smoothly and efficiently. Great players should focus their energy on the important things, the scouting report, the fine details that will help separate them from the competition. Centos will handle all the fine details, allowing the team, your business, to focus on what's most important. Centos has the products and services to help your employees stay safe from first aid to training and compliance courses. Centos is a proud Fortune 500 company with more than 43,000 employees operating over 500 locations across the United States and Canada. More than 1 million businesses trust Centos to help them open their doors with confidence. Get Centos and get ready for the workday. Learn how Centos can help get your business ready at centos.com. The plane had crashed about halfway between Kansas City and Wichita, 30 miles southwest of Emporia. Emporia? Who cared about Emporia? In the first half of the 20th century, pretty much anyone interested in politics cared about Emporia. William Allen White, the publisher and editor of the Emporia Gazette, had a voice that extended far beyond the reach of an eastern Kansas weekly newspaper. White had been a kingmaker in the Republican Party for a generation, a friend of presidents, and a talented wordsmith. In 1925, a new magazine called The New Yorker, yes, that New Yorker, profiled White. One can imagine a national political convention without an American flag, without nominating speeches, without a gavel, 
without a New York State majority, without a temperature of 96 degrees. There was no air conditioning in those days. But a national political convention without William Allen White in the press section is unthinkable. White and his son, William L. White, held forth on matters large and small from Emporia, and in the first week of April, there was no story larger than the one that fell almost literally into their laps. The Gazette covered the crash and consecutive issues in early April 1931. The writing is profound and eloquent. The reporting deep and descriptive. There is no byline. The work has been attributed to each of them. So died the great Viking of football on a high hill overlooking a prairie, at the crossroads of the old forgotten stage road and the new highway of the air. And at his bier, keeping vigil on the hilltop, stood not the four horsemen of Notre Dame, but four suntan horsemen of the plains, forcing back from the tangled wreckage a gaping, curious crowd. Swiftly and painlessly he passed from a land of far horizons into a horizon without bounds. White wrote for a weekly paper, but his reporting carried a glimpse of the communications revolution. Three telephone operators in nearby Cottonwood Falls, the Gazette reported, sat at their switchboard listening to grief-stricken voices of fathers and wives in Chicago, California, and Connecticut as they asked falteringly for the details which they dreaded to hear and pleaded for some kind of hope when there was none to give. Transcontinental Telephone Service was only a few years old and expensive. The minimum price of a coast-to-coast call in 1927 was $5.50 at a time when the average railway worker made $25 per week. On March 31, 1931, it remained a luxury, a last resort, a matter of life and death. All of which is to say, in the wake of the plane crash that killed Rockney, Long-distance calling became news itself. The three operators in Cottonwood Falls handled more than 400 calls. The exact number was a guess. But the Emporia Telephone Company, I just love that name, the Emporia Telephone Company estimated that $2,600 had been spent on phone calls and telegrams. That's more than $42,000 in today's money. Six relief telegraph operators rushed to handle the onslaught of telegrams in and out of the area. 30,000 more words than normal. Other newspapers reflected the depth of mourning across the nation. The Tulsa World reprinted O Captain, My Captain, the poem Walt Whitman wrote upon the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. Bill Cunningham, a columnist in the Boston Post known for casting a skeptical eye amid the gee whiz writing popular in the day, wrote as if he were truly grieving. Few men of recent years, whatever their past or whatever their station, Cunningham wrote, have received a more beautiful and memorable tribute of a nation's admiration, affection, and sudden, very definite sorrow than did this man, who was neither statesman, warrior, public servant nor prelate, who was only a football coach. The public reaction to the loss of Rockney threatened the health of the young airline industry in general, and TWA in particular. The demand to know why the plane plummeted to the ground put terrific pressure on the federal government, which in turn deflected the pressure onto the plane manufacturers. 
Investigators determined that moisture had weakened one of the wooden wings where it connected to the fuselage, and the wing came off the plane. From this disaster came not only the development of the all-metal aircraft, but a 1934 federal law that the probable cause of an air crash must be made public. When the Santa Fe Railroad train carrying Rockne's body arrived at the Dearborn Street Station in Chicago on the evening of April 1st, the day after the crash, it found a crowd of 10,000 people. Rockne's top assistant, Hunk Anderson, who would replace him as head coach, threw open the door of the baggage car. So tightly did the crowd wedge around the truck that movement became impossible, the Chicago Tribune reported. Policemen shouted, Women lost their shoes and derbies were crushed until after two or three minutes, the cortege got started up the platform to the waiting motor truck. Fifteen past presidents of the Notre Dame Club of Chicago joined Anderson and another coach to transfer the casket to the truck. Someone laid a floral blanket over the casket. As rose petals fell to the street, onlookers picked them up, perhaps as keepsakes. The men wedged themselves against the casket in the pressing crowd. A street black with people, wrote the United Press. The air smelled of flash powder, which ignited the bulbs that lit the scene for the newspaperman's nighttime photography. The AP reported, Judge Walter Steffen, coach of Carnegie Tech, stood bareheaded with tears coursing down his face as the body was sent on its way. The truck transported the casket from the Dearborn Street Station to the LaSalle Street Station four blocks away, where the New York Central Line would transport Rockney's body home. The train arrived in South Bend at 11.08 p.m. One more crowd of thousands were waiting at the station. The crowd might have been larger had the train not arrived 19 minutes early. The next day, Thursday, April 2nd, the AP reported, the funeral, although simple, promised to be one of the largest in American history. Bonnie Rockney and the two children returned home from Florida that Thursday. Mrs. Rockney refused to delay the service until the following week, after Easter, when the Notre Dame students would have returned to campus from vacation. Father O'Donnell, the university president, wanted to wait for the students. Mrs. Rockney didn't want to wait. She decided the funeral would not be open to the public, but she put the word out that she hoped as many of Rockney's former players as possible would attend. And so the pilgrimages to South Bend began. Coaches, former players, politicians, and friends from around the country came to the Rockney home at 1417 East Wayne Avenue, a newly built Tudor in the Sunnymead neighborhood. The empty lot adjacent to the home became the nesting ground for the overflow of hundreds of floral arrangements for which there was no room in the house. By Friday, a radio microphone was set up in the Rockney front yard so that the celebrities calling on the Rockneys could be interviewed. Celebrities like the mayor of New York, Jimmy Walker, who delayed his return home from a 17-day vacation in Palm Springs to stop in South Bend and pay a condolence call to the widow of his good friend. The mayor of Philadelphia came too, accompanied by Villanova coach Harry Stuhldreher, 
one of those famed four horsemen. Among the honorary pallbearers would be future Hall of Fame coaches Pop Warner of Stanford, Dan McGugan of Vanderbilt, Howard Jones of USC, and Jock Sutherland of Pittsburgh. On Friday morning, the McGann Funeral Home transported the casket to the Rockney House, where the coach lay in state from 10 a.m. until Saturday at 2 p.m., one hour before the funeral service. A rotating honor guard of two fighting Irish players from the 1930 team, Rockney's last, stood with the casket. Building a winning team is all about finding the right people for the job. That's why college coaches all over the country spend so much time recruiting players they need on the field. And when it comes to hiring for your business, there's no better tool than LinkedIn. LinkedIn provides a vast array of recommended job candidates all in one organized place. Over 600 million members visit LinkedIn to make connections, learn, and grow as professionals and discover new job opportunities. That's how they make sure your job post gets in front of people with the right hard skills and soft skills to meet your role requirements. Things like collaboration, work ethic, adaptability. LinkedIn does the legwork to match you to the most qualified candidates so you can focus on hiring the person who will transform your business. To get $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash CFB. That's linkedin.com slash CFB to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. As I mentioned, what made the funeral a national event was the advent of radio. On that day before the funeral, the Columbia Broadcasting Company arrived in South Bend to arrange to put the funeral service on the air. CBS, as we now know it, hoped to send the broadcast via shortwave from both coasts to reach Europe and Asia. The New York Times reported that it will be the most extensive broadcast of its kind in history. Of the three national radio networks, Columbia, an upstart not four years old, is the one that would take a chance on broadcasting a funeral. Columbia's rival NBC dominated the ratings, hosting 24 of the top 25 shows in radio. Boosting news and public affairs became the cheapest way to forge ahead and build a reputation. That's what CBS did. The network emphasized news coverage and broadcasting sports. Rockney's funeral engaged both camps of listeners. Radio was young enough that journalists struggled with how to describe it. The Des Moines Tribune Capital previewed the funeral broadcast as a national hookup for a word picture of the services. Shortly before 3 p.m. on Saturday, the long funeral procession made its way from the Rockney home to the Notre Dame campus. At the top of the hour, the stores in South Bend and nearby Mishawaka closed. All trains on the Chicago's South Shore and South Bend Railroad halted for one minute. The Chicago Tribune reported that as the cortege reached campus, the bell in the Sacred Heart Spire began to toll every 30 seconds. When the pallbearers carried Rockney's casket into the church, the Trib said, the only sounds came from the church bell and the voice of radio announcers describing the scene. Radio listeners heard the university choir. Olaf Berntz, the Norwegian council in Chicago, 
who attended as personal representative of King Hakun VI, placed a wreath beside the casket of Rockne on behalf of the coach's native land. And radio listeners heard Father O'Donnell give a eulogy for the ages. After the service, the funeral party left the church in another procession for Highland Cemetery, a couple of miles from campus. Mourners lined the street the whole way. A few days later, the Catholic Transcript Weekly reported, By permission of Coach Rockney's widow, the services in Sacred Heart Church were broadcast throughout the United States and countries abroad. The music of the choir and the organ in the deeply moving words of Father O'Donnell making the occasion one of solemnity and sorrow for radio listeners, as well as for those attending the rites. An American tradition had begun. For Down and Distance, I'm Ivan Maisel. Down and Distance is part of ESPN's College Football 150, commemorating the 150th anniversary of the sport. If you like this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Down and Distance is produced by Nina Ernest, with help from Scott Siebers, Ryan Nantel, and Jody Avergan. Special thanks to Alexandria Cooper. The executive producer of ESPN College Football 150 is John Dahl. I'm Ivan Maisel. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with a new episode.